Hey, Leading Learning listener, if you represent a membership organization looking for ways to expand your online course catalog rapidly with high quality content, we have good news. At leadinglearning.com AMA, you can find out how to make online training from the American Management Association available to your learners. Through a partnership between AMA and Tagoras, the parent company of Leading Learning, you can give your learners access to more than 70 e-learning modules covering essential business topics ranging from leading and innovating, to managing projects effectively, to working in hybrid teams. For details on how to grow your catalog with courses from a true global leader in management training, visit leadinglearning.com AMA. If you're a leader, or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Hey there, it's time for another episode of the Leading Learning Podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk with Shelley Alcorn and Elizabeth Engel about a new white paper that they have authored. But before we do that, we wanted to highlight our upcoming fall event, the Leading Learning Symposium, and special this time around, we wanted to highlight the fact that the program for the symposium is now posted at symposium.leadinglearning.com. Now, this is an event that is designed specifically for senior leaders in the business of lifelong learning, continuing education, and professional development, and we really put together what we think, uh, humbly, is a fantastic program for it. So please get on over to symposium leadinglearning.com. Check out the program and register yourself and your team today for the event in the business of lifelong learning. We'd also like to thank Com Partners, makers of the Elevate Learning Platform, for being the sponsor for this episode of the Leading Learning Podcast. You can find out more about Com Partners at compartners.com. Now, Salisa, you were the lucky one who got to talk with Shelly and Elizabeth about the work they've been doing. What did you find out? Well, they have co-authored a white paper called The Association Role in the New Education Paradigm, and that's really what we focused our conversation on. And, you know, a lot is happening in the education landscape just in general, and the white paper deals with things like that education to employment gap. But what is especially interesting is that because both Shelley and Elizabeth have really deep experience in the association sector, what they do is sort of take these general education trends and really uh, apply the association lens and look at what is it that associations could be doing to ameliorate the, the gap and the problems that we're seeing in the education system. Well, I think that gap is an incredibly important issue in general, and certainly it represents a, an area of significant opportunity for associations. Shelley and Elizabeth always do great work. I'm really looking forward to reading that white paper, and I'm really looking forward to hearing this interview. So let's crank it up. Salisa Steele, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. And today we have a three-way conversation as I'm joined by Shelley Alcorn and Elizabeth Engel. Shelley is Principal in Alcorn Associates Management Consulting and has about two and a half decades of experience in the nonprofit sector under her belt and specializes in trade associations and professional societies. And Elizabeth is CEO and Chief Strategist at Spark Consulting, and, and she can claim almost two decades of experience in association management. So Shelley and Elizabeth, thank you both for making time for this conversation. Thank you. 
And so I wanted to talk to you both today because you've co-authored an about-to-be-released white paper called The Association Role in the New Education Paradigm. And so I figure a good place to start is by digging into what is this new paradigm. So Shelley, would you tell us what is the new education paradigm that you refer to in the title of the white paper? Sure. Um, I've always had an interest in education and professional development. And I've had a bit of a non-conventional educational history myself. And when I look at associations and I see the incredible value that they bring in terms of providing professional development and those sorts of keys, um, I always felt like we were part of the Wild West. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we weren't really at the table. And a few years ago, I read a book called DIYU. Uh, Edupunks, Edupreneurs, and the Coming Transformation of Higher Education by Anya Kamenetz. And suddenly, the the book blew my head off. Uh, And suddenly, I started looking at the critique of higher education and what we have thought of over the years as education um, and how it's changing and changing rapidly. And suddenly, I started really digging in and researching on those things. And what we've discovered is, you know, we had this old model in our heads, this idea that you would go to primary school and you'd graduate from high school and then maybe you'd go to vocational training or maybe you'd go to a four-year degree and then you'd start your career. And what's happened over the past 15 years, 20 years, is due to a combination of factors, whether we're talking about decreasing funding for education, whether we're talking about questions about quality, um, and whether we're talking about all of these non-traditional ways that are starting to show up, suddenly we're realizing that education is not only not K-12 to college to career, uh, but it's vastly more interesting than that, moving into lifelong learning, uh, moving into into different platforms, different ways of connection, whether it's learning in the immediate moment uh, or whether it's going in deep. There's there's tons more flexibility built into the system. And, and those educational institutions that are not adjusting to those realities are going to find themselves really uh, on their on their heels, rocked back, and many of them are realizing that the system that used to be there is no longer there. Um, and what do we need to do to make sure that education is affordable, that's high quality, and that it's targeted to the right people at the right time? So that's sort of the new paradigm that's here, and we're all trying to find our way through it so that we can make sure that we're connecting people with interesting careers, with the skills they need to to move on and have a great life. Right, and I know that one thing you guys dig into right from the very beginning is that sort of gap between the um, education and then what the uh, employers need. And so now, Elizabeth, I'd like to ask you, you know, what prompted the two of you to write this white paper and, and why write it now? So the genesis for this was actually um, like right around December 2012, January 2013. Um, Shelley runs a an on again off again series called the Association Forecast that I believe is being in the process of being relaunched. Um, but towards the end of 2012, not long after I had launched Spark, Shelley contacted me about potentially participating in um, an Association Forecast. Vodcast, and uh, the topic that she had proposed for for that time is that uh, the McKinsey Center for Government had just at that point come out with a um, a really extensive study called Education to Employment: Designing a System That Works. And so Shelley had lined up a couple of us to go ahead and and read this study and review it and come prepared to talk about 
what was going on in the whole, and this was, this was a global study, in the whole realm of preparing young people uh, for careers in a wide variety of areas um, and what was and wasn't working about that. Um, and the study was fascinating. We had a terrific conversation that day. Um, and the, this whole topic of the education to employment gap and preparing people for careers, whether those people are young people coming out of their primary schooling or whether they're experienced workers who are switching careers, retraining, et cetera, um, that seed kind of got planted in the back of my head. So uh, with Spark, I do an ongoing series of white papers around a variety of topics, and I, and I keep a running list of topics um, that seem interesting to me. And I choose the ones that I'm going to work on based on opportunity. The the right uh, collaborator or co-author appears at the right time to, uh, to tackle that topic. Um, and when I was thinking about what I wanted to look at for 2016, um, I realized that I really was interested in diving back into this topic of the education to employment gap. And so... Uh, late last fall, I got in touch with Shelly and said, you know, hey, I know you've seen some of the other white papers I've done. Would you be interested in taking on this topic with me um, and being being my co-author um, on addressing this? And she said yes. Um, so we went ahead and uh, did the work and wrote the white paper. Well, great. So it sounds like it's uh, been a, over the course of a couple of years that you've gotten to this point. And I know that the white paper is really well researched. And so yeah, I know that you guys obviously uh, spent that time that it took sort of leading up to the release of this white paper well and really digging into the issue. And you have a lot of data in there from different sources that really just hones in on, on how much has changed and, and the implications of all of this. Yeah, you know, in one of the things in that white paper, you guys, you, you talk about the association advantage. So really, the, the factors that position associations to really help to be able to bridge the education to employment gap. And, and so, Shelley, I'm hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about what are some of those factors that, that associations have that give them an advantage. Sure. I think the first the first major advantage associations have is that they have collections of members who are actually doing the jobs uh, that we are trying to educate people to handle. Um, a, a clear example of sort of this just-in-time thinking uh, is back in the day I was at Sac State. I was taking a course in communications. I was already an executive director of an association, and we were going to print the next morning with the newsletter. And the teacher was was talking about technology that was five years old and print um print uh, customs that were no longer relevant. Uh And it was at that moment that I thought, oh my gosh, associations, that's where I get my information. Calis AE, ASAE, you know, that's my professional home. That's where I need to be because they're giving me the skills I need up to date right now. And I've never really lost that. And I don't want it to sound like I'm really overly critiquing post-secondary because I think there's tremendous value there, but it's misdirected. And the fact is, is careers are moving so fast and specializations are arriving so quickly on the scene that it's the people who are doing the work that really know what's happening and can try to communicate that back. But more importantly, 
need to communicate that directly to their constituencies. And so we have an advantage in terms of speed, firsthand insider access and knowledge. Uh, and we have a lot of experience with this idea of certification and credentialing. You know, the history of certification and credentialing is basically when we inherited people into industries and professions who had maybe a background of, of education but didn't have the specific skills they needed, that's where we started papering over that system with certification and credentialing. What that does is that gives us a head start because not only do we know how to do it, but we're going to be faster at moving to micro-credentialing and nano-credentialing because we already have an understanding of credentialing versus the semester system. So we have an advantage there, and and I believe that we can take that advantage and really address one of the, the most important critiques about degrees right now, which is post-secondary credentials are currently facing a crisis in relevance, accountability, consistency, and portability. And because an independent association can come in and set standards and create credible testing, uh, we have an advantage in relevance, accountability, consistency, and portability, and we can move faster than the post-secondary environment can. Um, and so we actually think there's stuff that they can learn from us uh, as well as stuff that we can learn from them because we have been kind of independent. We kind of depend on volunteers who may not be trained appropriately. They may not have the right sort of educational philosophy behind them to optimally uh, transmit uh, these educational concepts. Um, so we think that there's an opportunity for us to come together with both systems and really make something work. Uh, and as much as people talk about nonprofit status being um, not a business model, you know, <laughs> we hear that a lot, you know. Be about more business-like, sort of, yeah. <laughs> exactly, be more business-like when quite frankly, our nonprofit model and our philosophy actually plays better out there in the world it, because education can be a profit center for us, but it's not our mission, it's not our raison d'etre. So I think that we have a case to make that we're here to benefit the wholes of industries and professions and the education that we bring to it is being done to better those constituencies, not just make a private venture firm happy. So we have a lot of a lot of good things to say for ourselves. I think we kind of have been down on ourselves for a lot of years, but quite frankly, this educational crisis has positioned associations with the most with the most compelling opportunity to really demonstrate their value than we've had in a long time. And I think one of the other advantages that we have is this whole idea of non-traditional students. Mm. Um, you know, structured education has a very difficult time dealing with any kind of student that's considered non-traditional. I mean, I, I remember when I was in my own graduate program over 20 years ago, um, if there was no ability to study for it part time. There was there was no ability to be in this graduate program um, and have a full time job. They even encouraged discouraged us from having part time jobs, which is which is crazy talk. I was not. I was I was getting a, a graduate degree in political theory. I mean, this is not something where there's a lot of funding or I can I can work in the lab. There is no lab. Right. Um, you know, so it's it was all very much structured, I guess, around 
either being supported by your spouse or being independently wealthy. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and there was definitely no sense that I could have been working full time and doing this on nights and weekends. Um, and a lot of higher ed is in that old mindset of you are a full time student with some sort of fairy godmother who's out there funding this thing for you. Um, and associations all of our learners have always been non-traditional students. We exist for professions and industries. The expectation is the people who are coming to us for education are engaged in the work of those professions and industries on a part-time or full-time basis. And so therefore, they have to be able to get their learning from us outside of traditional classroom structures, outside of a traditional classroom schedule. Um, and so... That's not something in higher ed and, and other other providers, that's something they're trying to learn to accommodate in a structure that was not built for it. Our educational structures have been formed from the perspective of the non-traditional student. Well, great. You know, and I think you, both of you, you know, have in talking about the association advantage, you've talked about, um, you know, what associations have that other types of, of uh, educational and learning providers don't have. But I, I think, and Shelley, I think you hinted at this kind of in, in something you were saying, there is this idea of, you know, of collaboration or coming together. So Shelley, I don't know, do you want to say any more about kind of how maybe, uh, you know, associations and higher ed or corporations sort of might be, you know, fitting together to, to kind of collectively or collaboratively solve this problem of, of, of the new education um, uh, paradigm and the education to employment gap? Well, it's really going to depend on a, a collective response from the association community as a whole. You know, um, when I'm looking at statistics and I was doing research uh, on this topic, and I and you mentioned it earlier, you know, I've been researching this for a number of years at this point. And when I look at um, National Center for Education Statistics uh, from the U.S. government, uh, they talk about the needs of adult learners, and they talk about colleges, vocational institutions, unions, uh, corporations, and then there's this whole big other. <laughs> Yeah. And so we're kind of like we've always been the stepchildren at the table, and and I think that that has to change. Uh, we are not just collections of volunteers who get together for luncheons you know, <laughs> on a quarterly basis to talk just shop. You know, I think that that it's going to take us as an association community saying, you know what, we have power. We have knowledge, we have deep experience in these types of constituencies and educational programs, and we need to be taken seriously because we, we inherit students in the industries and professions, and data set after data set after data set is demonstrating that employers are saying, these aren't the skills we need. <laughs> right. Stop, you know, and I really think that, that post-secondary is now beginning to see that we may have something to say, but we need to, to actually get into the business of saying it. Uh, and I think the more we do to step up our game and actually be a competitor, the more opportunities we're going to have to have those conversations. You know, associations are really good with sort of that one-off partnership, right? Like an association will partner with a community college or maybe a school district, and they'll, they'll prepare educational programs for just that specific geographical area. Area. And in a global economy, 
with the reach of the internet and online education delivery, that's an old model too. We may be successfully partnering, but we're doing it on a one-off basis. And I think that absolutely has to change. You know, um, one of the things that was interesting, I was at a, at a function at the Institute for the Future with associations that the ASAE Foundation was doing. And um, there was a discussion where someone mentioned that there would have been a $250 million grant from the Workforce Reinvestment Board coming out of uh, the 2008 economic crisis. And then an association had gotten that money and then developed programs with four local community colleges. And, and my whole point was, my God, why didn't they keep the 250 k and develop a global program that would reach everyone? <laughs> right. you know, there may have been reasons for that. I mean, obviously, physical, physics labs, you know, big labs that, that, that have an economy of scale are always going to be necessary. But when we're talking about this more kind of technical communications-based education, there's just no reason to do that. Um, so hopefully we can develop those kinds of, of through lines where we're at the table as an equal partner talking about these issues and providing real solutions for post-secondary and vice versa. Well, great. And, and, you know, so we've talked a little bit about associations and how they have this inherent advantage and they need to sort of uh, talk about it more consistently and act on it more consistently. And so that's something I know that you guys devoted time to in the white paper, which is this kind of the hurdle of getting started. Um, and so, Elizabeth, would you share some of the advice that, that you have for how associations that are interested in really um, responding to and acting appropriately in the new education paradigm, how, how can they begin? What do you suggest? I think that um, the first place to start is with something that Shelley has already mentioned, which is this idea that we have a direct connection, not only to the professionals who are doing whatever it is that our industry or profession represents, but to the employers. We have, you know, direct line of sight connection to the actual employers who are hiring people. Um, and that is an incredibly valuable source of information that we're probably not using as well as we should be. Um, so there's, there's, you, you always want to start as an organization from the point of educating yourself. Um, and, and a piece of that is paying attention to global universal employment trends, um, and, you know, it, it starts from something that broad and gets down to, and then make sure that you're out there in the field talking to the employers who are hiring the people who are your members. Um, and you want to have that kind of integrated understanding of what's going on in employment, because when you look at things like global trends, one of the, the resources that we cite um, is a report out of Oxford, Oxford University uh, titled The Future of Employment, and it looks at... Um, what's going to happen with different occupations and automation. We actually put together an interactive Google Doc that's linked out of the white paper so that you can go in and actually look up um, the different uh, occupational categories that might be uh, appropriate for your profession or industry and find out you know, what are the chances that they're going to be impacted by automation. I mean, we all know the story of how blue-collar jobs – have been impacted by automation, you know, going back to the 70s. Um, and we've all seen the kinds of transformation that have taken place there. The interesting 
thing that's happening now is automation is starting to come for white collar jobs. Um, and so, you know, it's pretty easy if you're an organization of, you know, pick your favorite pr- profession, um, you know, the legal profession or accountants or doctors or whatever to say, oh, well, you know, automation is never going to, to impact us. Well, in fact, that's not correct. Um, you know, some of those, those white collar jobs like bookkeeping and paralegals and some levels of medical diagnosis are in fact about to be radically disrupted by automation. And it's important for associations to pay attention to that. Um, while you're sort of thinking about and hopefully not getting too freaked out by what's going to (laughs) happen in global employment, you also want to start thinking through, okay, in our actual profession or industry, what are what is the employment market looking like now in the future, and how are the skills that are going to be required to fill not only today's jobs but tomorrow's jobs in our industry or profession? You know what what skills are people going to be needing? It's only when you know what skills your professionals are going to need that you can start thinking about, so how are we going to assist in educating people for those skills? And it's all a part of understanding kind of the pathway of careers in your world too. When people come out of schooling, whether that would be they've graduated from high school, they've done a traditional for your college, they've done competency-based education, they've got a graduate degree, they've done vocational training, they've done an apprenticeship, whatever, how, you need to understand you know, sort of all the paths in. Um, and then once they arrive there and start establishing themselves with careers in your professional industry, what happens? Where do they go? Over the course of their careers, what kinds of additional learning and skills they need to acquire and start constructing Everything that you offer from, you know, micro learning opportunities all the way up to full certifications to reflect that both those future careers, those future skills and those pathways. Um, It's also important to pay attention to what's going on in technology. You know, so we're talking a little bit about um, micro credentialing, um, you know, we're talking about and, and of course, you know, Tagoras had come out with. Um, some terrific information about what's going on in both micro-credentialing and badging, I think last year, um, the Association Learning Plus Technology Report. Right. We want to be paying attention to that kind of stuff, too, because there's interesting uh, developments in the, in the world of tech as it touches on learning that we can begin taking advantage of. And then, of course, the other thing to think about is we do have this, as, as an industry, this long history with um, all different types of non-degree credentialing, so certificates, certifications, et cetera, um, even if your organization currently doesn't offer anything in that realm because, let's say, you're a CPA organization and you're like, well, everybody's just going to sit for the CPA exam and that's their qualification. Um, It's worthwhile looking into that stuff. We actually, the case studies that we did, we actually talked to two CPA societies. And and I must say, if you're interested in this whole world of new educational paradigms and all that sort of thing, a lot of the CPA groups are doing terrific work in this area. Um, But even there where there's this, you know, if you're going to be a CPA, you have to sit for the CPA exam. Um, Even there, they realize, you know, there are lots of adjacent finance professions where you don't necessarily 
need a CPA, but where you're doing various types of accounting type work, we could potentially start looking at those groups because they may be coming to us or could come to us for help on their career pathing. So again, even in something where you look at it and you say, our members all have PhDs or our members are all doctors or whatever, why would they need some sort of credential from us? Don't write that off. Yeah, I think that's a great point that you guys make in the white paper is that, right, just because something is done this way now doesn't mean that's uh, the way it's going to be done in the future. And in fact, it seems like based on a lot of the data sets that you look at, in fact, it's not going to be done the way that it has been done in the past. Um, You know, again, you guys both spent so so much time sort of thinking and looking at data sets. So a question I'd like to ask of each of you is, is to think about, you know, what did you learn during the process of researching and writing that that either surprised or, or interested you? And, and Shelley, I'll start with you on that. Sure. Um, I think there are a lot of things that are a little bit surprising when you really start digging into the data sets and you really start seeing how large the crisis actually is. You know, it, it, every day now there are articles coming out. I don't care whether you're reading Fast Company or Mashable or who you're reading, what you're looking at, talking about, the difficulty that post-secondary is having adjusting to these new conditions. And I think when you actually dig into that and actually look at the structural issues, uh, they become very, very compelling and very, very real. Um, the one, of, But one of the most surprising things that I ran across uh, doing uh, – the paper wasn't necessarily the data we were running across, although that was kind of amazing and eye-opening, sort of confirming what we naturally thought was happening, but (laughs) really is, um, was this idea of uh, this one online educational institution I ran across called Ubiquity University. And what they uh, are doing, which I find fascinating, is they're a global university, but they see the value of associations. And so they have created two different programs, uh, one of which has already launched which is a bachelor's capstone program. So the students have the option of working on and getting academic credit for the association's educational programming, as well as moving along and applying that to a bachelor's or just staying with a certificate or or however they want to go about doing that. And I think that 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 recognition of associations as partners is blending both of those worlds in a way that that I think is going to be very interesting going forward. So I'm I'm going to be watching them very carefully uh, and seeing what else they're going to do uh, in terms of this because the the inherent flexibility of that kind of model I think could be radically um, radically interesting uh, and I think it's it's a harbinger of good things to come. We'll make sure to include a a link to the Ubiquity U in the uh, show notes and, of course, also a link to the the white paper. Um, Elizabeth, how about you? What did you learn that that surprised or interested you? Um, The biggest thing that opened my eyes was actually um, an observation that that Shelley made that we talk about in the conclusion to the white paper, which is we tend to think of – the educational system as it currently is, as the way it's always been. Well, of course, you know, one would always potentially do some preschool and then, you know, you start kindergarten and you go to grade school and you go to middle school and you go to high school and maybe you take a gap year and then, you know, you get your degree and, you know, off you go into the, into the, the career world and it's all this very structured classroom environment and it's this very, 
um, regimented path that you need to follow. And, and, you know, we all understand that the percentage of people going on for, you know, for college degrees for higher education has increased over time. But, you know, that was always the goal. And that is all a totally false narrative. Um, our, our current education system is something that was created. Um, and that means that it can be recreated. Um, and in fact, there's these, these forces that we're talking about, all the, all the disruption that's happening in education that Shelley talked about, um, and that we, we, uh, recount in, in the white paper, everything that's happening in the changing world of employment and the kinds of skills that are required and differing and changing understandings about, um, what what is the function of higher education and is it or is it not doing a good job of preparing people for careers in a variety of professions and industries you know all of that stuff is malleable um and that you know this this very regimented grade school and and middle school and high school and college that's that's all a relatively recent development um and in fact there are all sorts of ways that one could conceive of education happening. Um, and that represents a tremendous opportunity, not just for associations, but for every player who is involved in the entire education sphere, whether that is traditional educational institutions or local or national governance or governments or in, you know, international organizations or associations or vocational schools or apprenticeships. I mean, we, we all have this amazing opportunity to think completely differently about how we might go about educating, not only, you know, in, in a one-time way, but in a lifelong way, the workforce of the future. Um, and when it's like, it's when, once you see that you can't unsee it, once you realize that all of these things were constructed and and not that long ago, all of a sudden you realize we have a wonderful opportunity here to completely rethink all of this in a way that serves both individuals, um, potential workers, and potential employers and our entire society in better ways. Right. So a real opportunity to to rethink and to reimagine. Um this is the next to last question that I have for each of you, um, and it's one that we ask everybody who comes on the Leading Learning Podcast, since we're so focused on, on lifelong learning. Uh, it's always interesting to hear about how folks approach their own lifelong learning. So, um, Shelley, would you tell me a little bit about how you approach uh, developing your own knowledge and skills and maintaining them? Sure. Um, I have a, a relatively aggressive uh, what I would call a personal knowledge acquisition strategy. Um, and so it's maybe taking through a day, <laughs> a normal day of what I would do. Uh, I try to spend at least two hours per day getting information in. Uh, I start in the morning uh, reviewing a relatively insane amount of Google <laughs> alerts uh, that I have set on a number of different topics. Uh, I will follow blog posts. I try to lead, read at least two or three blog posts that are interesting out of those Google alerts. Uh, I review Facebook feeds uh, in the morning uh, from Mashable, Wired Magazine, uh, try to see what's happening, what people are talking about. 
Um, I tend to take a pretty broad-based approach. Uh, I love learning about associations. If I want to learn more about associations, I concentrate on information coming out of ASAE or CalSAE or Georgia SAE. You know, a lot of the a lot of the state associations also do an excellent job at putting information out there. Uh, I try to read at least two books per month. Uh, I have a relatively robust Kindle uh, library, um, and I subscribe to core. Um, CuriosityStream.com. So I try to watch a documentary a day. Uh, and wow. in fact, I probably watch at least four or five a week. Uh, and I try to take a course off of Coursera, uh, probably once a quarter, some of which I pay for the specialization to show up on my LinkedIn, some of which I don't. Uh, I'm in the middle of a fascinating one right now called The Future of Education from the University yeah. of London. Yeah. <laughs> so Excellent. talking about what's happening in the UK. Um, so I try to I try to to use digital as much as possible, taking webinars when I can. Um, but I think the most important thing is really taking a broad-based approach. You know, I watch pop culture and movies and what's what's the latest pop song and, and what's going on over there as much as I watch hardcore data sets and, and, <laughs> right. and things coming out of tech because I think that all of those things give you a more well-rounded picture of what's happening in society at large. So, so that's sort of the, the process that I use. But I probably spend about two hours a day attempting to put those things in context and see how associations can use these things to advance their own missions. Great. Wow. So yeah, it does sound pretty aggressive, both in terms of information in and then also the time spent to reflect. Um, Elizabeth, how about you? What is your approach to lifelong learning? Um, I would say Shelly is far more organized about this than I am, but I, I think for me, the biggest thing is um, from the time I learned how to read in kindergarten, um, I've always been a voracious reader. Um, and I strongly second Shelley's um, idea of, you know, read outside your lane. Mm -hmm. um, you know, don't, it's very easy to get heads down in, well, I'm an association executive, so I need to focus all of my reading time on what's going on in associations and business books that are relevant for associations. And, and that just narrows your worldview in, I think, really damaging ways. Um, it's, it's important to read, you know, sure, some, some of that kind of stuff, but also long form journalism and, you know, um, high quality fiction and, and pop fiction and, you know, um, high quality nonfiction books and magazines that are in completely unrelated things, you know, sure, read Fast Company and, and Harvard Business Review, but also, you know, occasionally pick up car and driver, you know, mm -hmm. or, or something that's completely out of, you know, outside magazine, even if you would rather die than go hiking, um, <laughs> you know, just broaden the, broaden the scope of your sources, um, you know, to the, to the degree that you, you possibly can, because you never know where the next interesting thought or interesting idea is going to come from. And the other thing that I try to do is, um, and this actually relates to an Ignite presentation that I've done a couple of times um, called Carpe Annum, uh, Seize the Year, um, which is every year I try something different. So my New Year's resolution every year is to, to try something or do something or learn something. Um, and it's not about, oh, I'm going to, 
you know, lose 10 pounds and I'm going to exercise five times a week and I'm going to call my brother and I'm going to, it's, no, no, no. Um, if you're going to become a better person, just go ahead and do that. Um, this is all about, there's, there's something I've been interested in checking out or a skill I'd like to try, even like, I'm not expecting to become an expert in that, you know, in a year. Um, but it's all about continuing to feed yourself, not just with information, but with experiences. All right. So I have to ask, what is your 2016, uh, goal or, or focus? Uh, my 2016, I've, and I've actually already achieved this, it was to um, walk the Great Saunter, which is a um, an organized walk that's put on by a New York City-based walking club called the Shore Walkers, um, where you walk the entire perimeter of Manhattan Island in one day. Huh, interesting. Which is almost 33 miles. Wow. Um, and it, yeah, we, uh, we trained for it throughout the spring, um, and then completed the great saunter, which many people do not. It, and it's certainly not required that you do the whole thing. Most people who do it only do part of it. Um, but we completed the entire great saunter the first weekend of May. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> well, great. So, you know, the last question I have for the two of you is just if folks want to know more about you, where should they look? Shelly. Um, follow me on Twitter at Shelly Alcorn. It's really pretty simple. <laughs> um, you can follow, uh, send me an email at Shelly at AlcornAssociates.com. And like Elizabeth mentioned, I am getting ready to relaunch the Association Forecast at www.associationforecast.com. Uh, it will be live here relatively soon uh, and we'll be focusing on producing some documentaries uh, about the good work and the topics that associations need to be paying attention to. So we're sort of moving into the video video world and, and relaunching a new blog. So for those of you who subscribe to the Association Subculture, I love you guys. I hope you guys come over to Association Forecast. I'm kind of growing up a little bit. So come along with me. <laughs> All right. Great. And Elizabeth, how about uh, you? How can folks uh, keep up with you or find out more? Um, certainly, uh, go to the uh, bit.ly URL that will be part of the show notes and download the white paper and check it out. Um, and you know, tell us tell us what you think once you've read it. Um, I you can also follow me on Twitter. It's at e w e n g e l, spelled like e w like my my initials and e n g e l like my last name. Um, or come to my website, getmespark.com. Um, the main feature of the site is the Spark blog. Um, and so there's all kinds of fresh and tasty stuff posted there on a, on a fairly regular basis. Well, great. Thank you both so much for taking time to talk today. Thank you, Shelley. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Salisa. That wraps up our interview with Shelley Alcorn and Elizabeth Engel. As we are exiting, we want to highlight one more time that the program for our fall event, the Leading Learning Symposium, is now posted at symposium.leadinglearning.com. And we encourage you to get over there, check out the great lineup that we have for that event, and register yourself and your team today for the event in the business of lifelong learning. Again, thanks to Com Partners for sponsoring this podcast episode. To get show notes, you can go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 44. And while you're there, you'll see various options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you're getting value out of the podcast, we would be truly grateful if you would subscribe. We'd also be grateful if you'd get on over to iTunes and leave us a brief uh, review and rating. You can get there very easily just by going to leadinglearning.com forward slash iTunes. 
Finally, consider telling others about the podcast. You can send out a tweet by going to leadinglearning.com slash share, or if tweeting isn't your thing, just pick another social network of your preference and spread the good word that way. So thanks again, and we'll see you the next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.